Welcome to the Laura Plantation Podcast. Laura Plantation provides a cultural experience unlike any other in the United States. Here you will find the difference that exemplifies Creole Louisiana. Explore the rigors of 200 years of daily life along with the sobering experience of slavery as it happened at one historic site on the banks of the Mississippi River in the middle of New Orleans plantation country. In this podcast, historian Katie Morlos Shannon and director of PR and marketing Joseph Dunn will be your guides into the Creole world, offering you true, personal, compelling stories of the people who lived, worked, and died at this unique historic site. Real history about real people. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 13 of the Laura Plantation Podcast. Today is a special Juneteenth episode. We are going to celebrate Juneteenth by honoring some of the people who lived through the first Juneteenth and helped make it all happen. So just a a quick um, summary for people who may not be familiar with Juneteenth. Juneteenth refers to the date of June 19th, 1865. So in 1863, the Emancipation Proclamation was um, declared and uh, by, by Abraham Lincoln, and it freed enslaved people, but only in the Confederate occupied areas of the country. So only in the areas that were still in rebellion. Effectively, it didn't really free anyone um, at first because the Union had to enforce it. The United States had to enforce this and they were not in the Confederate occupied areas at the time. However, as the war progressed and Union troops moved throughout the country, taking back areas, they liberated the enslaved populations that were living there. Now, the last frontier, if you will, the, the one of the last areas to receive Union troops was Texas, because think about the location of Texas. It's far out in the West. Most of the fighting in the Civil War was going on um, in Virginia and um, along eventually uh, Tennessee and Georgia and then into South Carolina. There was, of course, Louisiana and New Orleans was taken over um, in 1862 rather early. But the thing about it was um, the area towards Texas in Louisiana still remained under Confederate control. So Texas was kind of uh, the last area to be in Confederate hands. And this included the northwestern area of Louisiana, Shreveport, which is just, you know, across the uh, the border from Texas. It's, it's very close to Texas. Shreveport, Louisiana was the capital of Confederate Louisiana. 
uh, towards the second half of the Civil War. And Shreveport was one of the last places to fall into um, Union hands, to become effectively a part of the United States again. So then you have Texas. Now we're talking about the Civil War ending in officially uh, in, in many people's minds in April of 1865, when General Lee, Robert E. Lee, surrendered to uh, Ulysses S. Grant, the Union general, at um, Appomattox Courthouse up in Virginia. So that's kind of the accepted end of the Civil War in most people's minds. But I think what people don't realize is that the fighting didn't just stop then. There were areas, particularly in the Lower South, that were still under Confederate control, such as Northwest Louisiana and Texas. And a large part of that was, of course, isolation. Texas was isolated and farther away from the rest of the Confederacy. It was also vast. I mean, it was it's huge. Everything's bigger in Texas, right? So it wasn't until fast forward from April to June that the Union troops arrived in Texas. So you had what was considered the, quote, last battle of the Civil War in Texas. Now, this is like a month after the surrender of Lee at Appomattox. This was called White's Ranch. the a battle in Texas um, near the Rio Grande, near Brownsville, on May 13th, 1865. And then it kind of started opening up the, the area to Union troops. So on June 18th, 1865, General Gordon Granger arrived in Galveston, Texas with 2,000 Union troops. And something to keep in mind is that the enslaved population of Texas, because they were in a Confederate occupied area, an area that was still under rebellion that had not been taken over by the United States, these enslaved people were still enslaved. They, the population was still living under slavery in June of 1865, even though the Emancipation Proclamation was in 1863, and even though the surrender at Appomattox Courthouse took place in April of 1865, we are still talking about an enslaved population in Texas. Um, Upwards of 250,000 people still living in slavery in Texas. That's because during the Civil War, slaveholders wanted to maintain slavery, wanted to keep the individuals that they considered their property. And they did so by moving west, by traveling west with them into Texas, the last Confederate stronghold. And in doing so, they thought that they were protecting um, their their property rights and that they would... Um, somehow elude union control. And they did for quite a while because we're talking June of 1865 here and there's still people living in slavery. But General Gordon Granger arrives in Galveston on June 18th, 1865. 
with United States troops. And the next day, June 19th, 1865, hence Juneteenth, June 19th, the general stood up on a balcony and he read from something called General Order Number 3, which officially ended slavery in that area, in Texas. And that is considered Juneteenth. And what happened was the people of Texas, the formerly enslaved people of Texas, recognized the importance of that date and celebrated it on the anniversary of that date every year. They would celebrate, they would commemorate Granger's announcement of the end of slavery in Texas. So they would, some of them called it Jubilee Day, but Juneteenth, June 19th, really took off. The first year, um, the first time Juneteenth was celebrated was June 19th, 1866, and they celebrated that to mark their freedom. This is important for many reasons. Obviously, um, the end of slavery in the United States is hugely significant. Of course, this the end of slavery did not mean equal rights. It did not mean that civil rights were going to be established and, and upheld under the law. And that was a huge part of what Reconstruction was about. And then ultimately the failure of Reconstruction and the fight continued through this um, into the uh, 20th century, the civil rights movement. And many would argue we're still fighting um, for civil rights and equality under the law to this day. Now, all of this is very abstract. We are hearing the name of a, a single general, and we are envisioning a, um, a, a group of people standing before a, a balcony listening to him make an announcement. We're talking about 250,000 enslaved people. So that's a very vast kind of abstract idea. And at Laura, at Laura Plantation, we believe that history is best told through story. So in honor of Juneteenth and celebration of Juneteenth, I am going to talk about some individuals connected to Laura Plantation who would have taken part in the first Juneteenth celebration and kind of highlight a little bit about their role. Because really, it's about the individual lives of people and how they were impacted. And I think that that will convey to us a sense of what Juneteenth was really about. So let's go back to the Civil War. It's 1862, the middle of the Civil War, and New Orleans fell to the United States troops, and they came in and reestablished United States government, and then they began to send troops up the river to take on Confederates that were still in the countryside. And in doing so, they came upon the plantations along the river road, along the Mississippi River, one of which was Laura Plantation. Now, when they arrived, only one of the owners of Laura Plantation was present. Elizabeth LaCool, Laura's grandmother, had taken several uh, of her enslaved domestic servants, perhaps as many as 10, 
along with her um, daughter and her daughter's family, and they had gone out to Western Louisiana. Now, one of the things when you when the enslaved people at Laura Plantation were interviewed, were um, deposed in a, um, a lawsuit many, many years later, when they looked back on this time period, they would say that many of the enslaved people were being threatened with being brought to Texas, including the people enslaved at Laura Plantation. Now, this harkens back to what I was just saying about 250,000 enslaved people being in Texas um, and still being under slavery in 1865. This is because rich planters like the Lacools of Laura Plantation took their slaves and brought them out west to Texas. So that was a real threat. And in doing so, they were often separated from their families and their homes, and it, it proved very difficult for them to reconnect with their families after the war. So that was what was going on at Laura Plantation. And then you have the arrival of these Union troops. Now, the first wave of Union troops came through in the fall of 1862, and they did inspire enlistment in the United States Army the formation of the Louisiana Native Guard, which would later be the United States Colored Troops, was going on at the time. So you had your first Black soldiers enlisting and serving in the Union Army. Now, in the, and this continued throughout the war. In the summer of 1864, the 80th United States Colored Troops, one of those Black regiments, formed in, in Louisiana were stationed near Laura Plantation. They um, were partially stationed in St. James Parish and then also at um, a, a several companies in St. John the Baptist Parish. This was right in the neighborhood of Laura Plantation. And the proximity of these colored troops, and that's the official term for them, they were the United States Colored Troops, inspired enslaved men, typically very young men, about 18, 19, 20 years old, at Laura Plantation on, and on the surrounding plantations to enlist. So they went to the headquarters of the 80th Regiment and they joined up and to fight for freedom. Two of the men from Laura Plantation who did this were named uh, Bernard Stewart and August James. Bernard Stewart was the son of one of the, the people, uh, one of the domestic servants that was brought away from the plantation by the Lacools and threatened with being brought to Texas. His mother, Manon, she was a housemaid, um, an enslaved house servant in the, uh, the Lacools household. August James' parents were um, field workers, and his father was also a carpenter. Now, Bernard Stewart, he appeared to be um, receiving some training, some skills, blacksmithing, that kind of thing. August James was a field worker. They're both around 18 years old, and they go and they enlist in the 80th United States Colored Infantry, and they do so with friends in the community. The 
uh, plantation adjacent to Laura was called Armont Plantation. The families, both in the big house and out in the quarters, were all interconnected. They were friends. They intermarried. They had family members. that They shared kinship networks. So um, one of the enslaved soldiers, formerly enslaved men who became a soldier from Armont, was named Zeno Joseph. They were all Creole, and they spoke French, and they were Catholic. So they join up. What does this have to do with Juneteenth? Apart from the fact that these men sacrificed a great deal fighting for freedom, well, the 80th United States Colored Infantry arrived in Texas in May 1866, just a month before the celebration of the first Juneteenth. So they were there to witness the celebration of the first anniversary of emancipation in Texas on June 19th, 1866, Jubilee Day or Juneteenth. So you have these um, these men stationed in Texas. They were formerly enslaved. They were, They had lived their lives as slaves and now they were free men. And their purpose was to keep law and order, to make sure that the reconstruction um, ideals were being upheld. This included making sure that freedmen, formerly enslaved men and women who were laboring on plantations and in other capacities, received payment for their work. And they had to make sure that they were getting paid, that they were being treated properly. They had to make sure that that citizens in the area were loyal to the United States government. They had to um, track down any Confederate guerrillas who were still causing issues. They policed the area. They dealt with violence on a regular basis because Texas really didn't want to be reconstructed. They did not, Texans did not want to accept the United States government and the reconstruction government. And so the the United States Colored Infantry really had a lot of, uh, faced a lot of challenges and difficulties because not only did the Texans not want to be reconstructed, did not want to adhere to the United States government, did not want to recognize the abolition, the the end of slavery, they also did not want black troops to tell them what to do. They did not want to see black men in positions of authority armed and policing them. So this is the challenge that these newly freed um, formerly enslaved soldiers faced. And August James and Bernard Stewart and Zeno Joseph were um, right on the front lines of this. And in many ways, they were freedom fighters. They were some of the first. So they regularly encountered violence. And unfortunately, they encountered violence towards themselves. And there was an incident that I wanted to talk about that involved um, violence and murder at the hands of Texan, uh, a Texas man, and the who was he was protected by his community because they did not feel that these black troops had the right to be in their community and to be in positions of authority. 
So in August of 1866, just a couple months after the first Juneteenth celebration in Texas, the 80th United States Colored Infantry was stationed at uh, Jefferson, Texas, not far from Marshall, Texas, just across the Louisiana border from Shreveport. And a man uh, named uh, Jack Phillips, he was a white man. He considered himself the marshal of the county. He was overseeing a, a group of laborers, black laborers who were working on a road. Members, soldiers of the 80th United States Colored Infantry were walking by and they began to converse with the black laborers. Jack Phillips did not appreciate the fact that the laborers stopped working. He, it, it, it angered him. It particularly enraged him that these black troops were involved in slowing down the work and that they felt that they could have a position of authority and um, kind of direct the goings on. So he began to scream profanities and curses at them and to denigrate them. At which point, two of the soldiers, they they took him aside and one of them hit him with his gun and the other one kind of roughed him up and they got him to stop talking and stop disrespecting them and threatening them. So they went on their way. They let him go. They didn't bring him in um, to to keep uh to to jail or or anything like that they didn't they didn't do any kind of physical violence to him after that they they let him go and then marshal jack phillips became so enraged and disturbed and just outdone with the fact that these black soldiers had treated him that way that he came up with a plan. He, he got his pistol and the following day he went down to um, where they, the 80th United States Colored Regiment was stationed, where many of them were working. He found out where they were and he kind of, he, he lay in ambush, ambush waiting for them. One of the men who witnessed and, and who was a part of the violence that would ensue was none other than Zeno Joseph, formerly enslaved at Armont Plantation, which was right next to Laura, and he was friends with Bernard Stewart and August James. And Zeno Joseph, in his old age, discussed the incident. He said, I was wounded by a glancing shot while eating watermelon Um, Near Marshall, Texas, someone fired at us from the bushes and killed two men. A ball struck me on the top of the forehead and grazed the skin. So he and several other men were eating their lunch. They were eating watermelons and getting water to drink while on break. And Marshall Phillips goes up to them and he fires the gun on them. The two men who were killed were Nathaniel Eaglin and John Bull. They were about 20 and 21 years old. And he went up to them with a revolver in his hand and placed it just a few inches before their heads and shot each of them and killed them. And then 
got away. He, he escaped. The men who died that day, Private Nathan Eaglin and Private John Bull, had enlisted in St. James Parish, where Lower Plantation is located. They had enlisted with Bernard Stewart, August James, and Zeno Joseph. They were from that area. They were from the river parishes in, New- in Louisiana. And they died that day as an, a result of white supremacy, a white supremacist act. And the army decided that they would, given, given the tensions in the community, they had a warrant for Marshal Jack Phillips' arrest placed in the hands of civil authorities. They themselves did not see a way to handle it because Jack Phillips was being protected by the local community. He was being harbored by his friends and kept safe. So uh, another thing that that is interesting to note is that um, Private Nathaniel Eaglin and Private John Bull, neither of them had participated in the event that kind of um, precipitated all of this. Neither of them were present when uh, Marshall Phillips had been confronted by the uh, the 80th um, Colored Troops earlier on uh, the day before on the road. In fact, one of them had never even seen the guy or met him. So this was clearly a premeditated uh, attack upon United States Army um, United States soldiers. And yet the army just didn't feel like there was much that they could do. The, um, captain and major of the regiment wrote an account of what had happened. And he said, I think the feelings of the citizens of Jefferson, Jefferson, Texas, worthy of remark in this connection, very few condemn the terrible act but the general expression is of joy and a wish that he had killed the last one of them. His friends think he will kill more. So there, they were almost, because of the, the circumstances in Texas, pre- prevented from even um, seeking justice for this, these two murders. And not only were they murders, but they were murders of U.S. soldiers, which is a big deal. This incident was such a big deal that it was brought to the attention of General um, P.H. Sheridan, General Philip Sheridan. And Sheridan, his response was that Texas is different. Texas is a place of um, almost of lawlessness and of um, uh, it presented a unique challenge in terms of law enforcement. He wrote, I doubt very much if any redress can be obtained in this case, but we'll follow it up. This section of the state of Texas is very lawless from all that I hear and the injustice done to freedmen are very great there. But I can cover, uh, but for this case, as I do not have enough troops to spare. So he didn't have troops to spare, and 
they just kind of wrote it off as this is part of reconstruction violence. And um, unfortunately, uh, uh, Private Nathaniel Eagland and Private John Bull never had justice served uh, for, for their deaths. So on this Juneteenth, we remember them. We we are thankful and grateful for their sacrifice, but we also recognize that like the citizens in Texas, the, the freedmen, the formerly enslaved people of Texas who celebrated Juneteenth, who recognized the significance of emancipation and of freedom, at the same time, surrounded by violence, surrounded by um, white supremacist acts, that they had a long way to go. And we still, as a country, of course, have much to celebrate. We need to celebrate. We need to recognize our gains um, this Juneteenth. But we also have to recognize that we do have issues that still need to be addressed and um, a fight for freedom. Now, the 80th, 80th United, uh, the 80th U.S. Colored Troops, they were significant because they, they served out the remainder of their time in Texas. And then in May of 1867, right, or excuse me, March of 1867, right around the time the first Reconstruction Act was passed. And it was passed because of violence, like, like what happened in Texas to the 80th Regiment, they were in the process of being mustered out. And the 80th holds the unique distinction of being the last black regiment on reconstruction duty in the South. So they did their duty and they fought hard and they were definite freedom fighters. And we need to remember them and celebrate them this Juneteenth. So, Today, think about men like August James and Bernard Stewart and Zeno Joseph, as well as Nathan England and John Bull, who served their country, fought for freedom, and were among the first witnesses to the first Juneteenth celebration in the United States on June 19th, 1866. Happy Juneteenth. And may we have many more Juneteenths to come. Thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed what you heard today, please leave us a review. And um, that, that way more people can find out about the podcast and hear these stories of people who lived and died at Laura Plantation or connected with Laura Plantation in some way. Here at Laura, we talk, tell real stories about real people and real history. Thank you for joining us. We invite you to visit Laura Plantation, where you can walk in the footsteps of the people you've learned about today. For more information, see our website, www.lauraplantation.com. Our tour is based on thousands of pages of primary source documents amassed through tenacious research spanning three decades. At Laura, you will walk in the footsteps of the people who made history. Be in the rooms where it all happened. Join us again next week.
to hear real history about real people.